0: Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. As we continue our teaching series through Matthew's gospel, multi-year, the anthem. In theory, we are in our last season in Matthew. The plan is to end it by the summer before we move on to finish up practicing the way. And just to end the kind of COVID season of church at home and all of that, by sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus. On that note, let's stand together for the reading of scripture. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together Hang on these two commandments. Take a seat. Late in the first century BC, a young Gentile made a trek across the Mediterranean to visit Israel and to search out the great rabbis of the day. He found the two most famous in all of the land, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, With melodramatic flair, he stood on one leg in front of them and the crowd, and he said, teach me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot, which is how I like to ask questions as well, by the way. (laughs) Rabbi Shammai got angry, and he chased him away with a stick, which is also how I like to answer questions I don't know how to answer. But Rabbi Hillel instead turned to the crowd, and he said, Quote, what is hateful for you, do not do to your neighbor that is the whole Torah. Everything else is interpretation now that story is from the Talmud, a collection of Jewish writings from round about the time of Jesus of nazareth it 's a window into a time when people were asking questions about the most important commandment in the Torah or in English translations it's the word law. What that means is the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. You see there are 613 commandments or mitzvot is the Hebrew word. Can you say that? Well done. In the Torah, just in the first five books, 248 of the mitzvot are positive and 365 are negative one for every single day of the year. Then on top of the 613 mitzvot in the Torah, there were 1,500 more commandments in the Mishnah, the collection of teachings on the Torah that grew up in rabbinic Judaism around the time of Jesus. At some point, when there are hundreds or even thousands of mitzvot, you start asking the question, okay, which one's the most important? Like, how do I categorize the thousands before me? The rabbis would argue back and forth about which mitzvot were heavy and which were light, meaning which ones were the most important and weighty and which ones were important but secondary or down the list. But really what they are asking is, what is the Bible all about? What's the point? What's God's vision of human flourishing, of reality itself? And what is God asking of me Or even at a deeper level, what is the meaning and purpose of life? What's the target that I am aiming for? What is the telos of the human being? It's the question of the human condition, not just for first century Jewish culture, but for every generation and every culture. Now, first-century Israel was a culture, for all of its flaws, that was built around the assumption that the answer to that question is found ultimately in God Himself, and more specifically in the library of Scripture. That God and His ways, as they come to us through the Bible opening your lap, are the path to what we Westerners would call the good life. Modern Western culture that you and I grew up in, for the most part, is the exact opposite. It's built around the assumption that the answer to the question is found within, in the self, or without in science or technology or politics or whatever your de facto secular idol or ideology of choice is not in God and definitely not in Scripture. In fact, the assumption is that God and Scripture are obstacles on the path to life, not the yellow line down the middle. Still, we ask the same question But in a different way, we would say things like, what is life all about? Is it happiness? Is there something more? Am I just an animal or do I have a soul? Is Pixar right? Is there more to me? When I die, by the way, that was made by a Christian. When I die, how will I know if I truly lived? Whichever worldview you gravitate toward, I invite you to seriously consider this morning Jesus' answer to the question. Let's just work through the text kind of line by line if your Bible is open in your lap, if you're at home or here and you have a notepad as well. Take a look again at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now to recap... In context, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who are not friends, are enemies, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend, as the saying goes, are working together in that vain attempt to trap Jesus with loaded questions. They're playing kind of a game of theological kung fu with Jesus, and they are losing very badly. Verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law or the Torah, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment or mitzvot in the Torah? Now, the Pharisees send an expert, kind of one of the best, whose job was to interpret every nook and cranny of the Torah. It's basically a lawyer. It's hard for us to realize that because we separate religion and state, but there was no such separation in Jesus' world. And so an expert on the Torah was just as true for us today as a lawyer on the law. And so he's an expert, well-educated, and he comes to test Jesus. Now, the word test in Greek is parazo, and it means to trap or to trip up, meaning he's not coming with a genuine desire to follow the truth wherever it leads, or even with a spirit of curiosity, but with his mind already made up and more than that, hostile to Jesus and trying to poke the bear and get Jesus to slip. But listen to Jesus' answer. 37, Jesus replied, quote, "'Love the Lord your God.'" with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Notice the double quotation marks if you have the NIV. Jesus' answer is a quote of a mitzvot from Deuteronomy chapter 6. With your finger right here in Matthew, turn there and take a look at Deuteronomy 6 in the original context. Take a look at Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 where the quote is from. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, this mitzvot that we just read is called the Shema. We say Shema, that sounds a little bit more English. If you really want to do it right, it's Shema. You have to like put some, you know... Shema on it or whatever, because the first word, hear, O Israel, is Shema in Hebrew. And it doesn't mean just, you know, let sound waves enter your ears. It doesn't even mean just pay attention. To Shema means to listen and obey. So it's it's the sense when we say to our, our spouse in an argument, if you ever have one of those, I never do, you're not hearing me. What we mean is you're not shmaing me, right? We say this to our kids all the time after watching the Bible project video on the Shema. We say to our kids, Moses, shma me, right? You're not, you're you're hearing me, but you're not hearing me, meaning you're not obeying me. Listen to what I'm saying and do what I'm asking of you. Now, what is Israel to Shema? The Lord our God, next line, the Lord is one, meaning the God we call God is the one true creator God over all the other created kind of lowercase g gods, other spiritual entities in the universe. Love the Lord your God. There's the command. The word love is ahava in Hebrew, and it's not the word for romantic love. Those feelings are built into the word though, but it means to give your loyalty and allegiance over to Yahweh, over the other gods. To channel your heart's desire onto him and his overflow of goodness just from a deep place of trust in his character and compassion. Remember, this command comes in the middle of a story, not in a random like rule book. And it's a story about how Yahweh, the same God they are to love, has saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt, set them free, brought them through the desert to the edge of a whole new land of possibility. And what are they to do in return? After the receiving the love of God, they are to start giving it back. Love the Lord your God. Next line, with all your heart. The word heart is levav in Hebrew. It does not mean the organ in your chest. Ancient Hebrews were well aware that there was something in there keeping your heart alive, but it became a word picture or a metaphor for your inner center, the trifecta of your thinking, your feeling, and your desire. That's the best summary of a biblical theology of the heart I'm aware of. It's that kind of your thought life, your emotions, and your your freedom of will, your volition, that inner fulcrum that all of us have that is the cockpit of our whole life. And with all of your soul. Now, in Hebrew, the word for soul is nefesh. It's used 300, I'm sorry, 700 times in the Old Testament alone. And sadly, soul really isn't a great translation. <laughs> Dr. Gary Bashir is from Western Seminary. is kind enough to read my sermon every weekend before I preach it. And in his notes to me this morning, he said, it's a terrible translation in all caps or whatever. And that's because soul, at least the English word soul, comes with a lot of baggage from Greek philosophy. We think about soul more defined by Plato than we do by Moses or Jesus or Paul. Any of you see Soul the movie a few months ago? Great film, it made me tear up but soul there and it's not to critique the film it's just to say that soul there is how westerners think of soul as this invisible immaterial part of you that kind of goes up to heaven or whatever that place was when you die and, you know, that's that's fine, but that's not at all what soul means in the library of Scripture in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Your soul or your nephesh is a way of saying your whole perp- person and your life force, and in biblical theology, your body is a part of your nephesh or a part of your soul. There are texts in the Old Testament about a dead nephesh, where there's still a nephesh there on the ground, it's just dead. A de- There's a soul on the ground, there's a person on the on the ground, it's just dead because you don't have a nephesh in biblical theology, you are one, any more than you don't have a body. You are a body, or if you want to be a little more precise, your body is a part of who you are. The Shema is saying, don't just offer God this kind of inner center of your thinking, your feeling, your desire, your heart, but all of you, including your body itself and your every member of your body and your life force, very similar to Paul in Romans, you know, offer your bodies as living sacrifices and the members of your body as, quote, instruments of righteousness. God, here's my heart, and here's my body, and here's my sexuality, and here's my mind and my eyes and my ears and my hands and my energy and my life force. Here's all that I am as an offering to you in love. And then the last line, with all your strength. Now, the word here is me'od, and again, strength is not a great translation, and that's not to critique the translators, because it's very hard to translate into English. It does not mean your capacity to bench press. Praise God, or I'd have very little love capacity for God, right? It's an adverb in Hebrew, so we miss that. Uh, Strengthfully doesn't really translate well into English, right? It's an adverb, and it just means much or very. For example, it's used on the first page of the Bible. When God saw all that he had made, we read that it was ma'od tov, or very good. Tov is the word for good. Ma'od is an adverb, meaning very, or it was, it was very good, it was much good, it was goodly. Good. Literally, the Hebrew is saying, love God with all of your muchness. It means to love God with all of your capacities. Some ancient uh, Hebrew... Targums, which were Aramaic, Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible, translate it as wealth or resources. Love God with all of your money. Love God with all that you have. Some scholars today argue that the best English word we have for it is your influence. Love God with all of your influence. So it's saying, not just God, here's my heart, here's my inner self. Not just God, here's my body and all that I am. But God, here's my privilege, here's my career, here's my education, here's whatever platform I have here's whatever relationships I have here's whatever um, networking capacity I have here's whatever gifting or talent or favor I have with other people God here's my muchness some of us don't have a lot of muchness, but that's okay. However much you have or I have, just God here is all. Now, of, cor- of course, the point here of heart, soul, and strength isn't to give a human anthropology. You're not reading like an academic essay, right? It's not to break humans into three components. We are integrated, holistic beings. It's to say, love God with all that you are just with every ounce of what makes you, you. To not compartmentalize or to compromise, which is the the bent for all of us, right? God, here's this part of my life that's easy to give to you, but let me hold back this other one. God, here's my morning routine, but I'm keeping my sexuality. Or God, here's my sexuality, but I'm keeping that wound from my father. Or God, here's my, but I'm keeping vulnerability. Like, just to give God all that we are. And notice that the command or the mitzvot goes on. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts meaning before your thinking and your feeling and your desire, or to be thinking about them, or to be feeling them, or to be wanting them. Impress them on your children. Parents, listen carefully. Talk about them when you sit at home, after dinner, around the table, or whatever, when you walk along the road, when you're driving somewhere, when you lie down, and when you get up before bed and first thing in the morning or you're running off to school. Tie them as symbols on your hands. The Jews would literally do this and wear phylacteries. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses. Jews still do this to this day. And on your gates, meaning just everywhere you go, surround yourself with this mitzvot, this call to love God with all you are. And remember that the Shema isn't just a command, it is a prayer. To this day, thousands of years later, Orthodox Jews pray the Shema twice a day. It is a whole life orientation toward loving and trusting and yielding to the love of God. Now, Uh, Back to Matthew, if your finger is still there. So Jesus has a quote of Deuteronomy 6 of the Shema. Then verse 38, he says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. This is at the top of the list, right? Double imperative there. But then he goes on, and the second is like it. Now, did they ask what the second was? No, they did not, and a lot of us introverts would be really happy if Jesus just ended right here. I would—I'm like—it's not offensive to me to love God with all that I am. I struggle to do that, but I want to do that. From I think that is the genuine, deep desire of my heart. But I—I would be happy to not love all sorts of other people. Jesus goes on. The second is like it: love your neighbor as yourself now yet another quote notice the double quotation marks this one is from Leviticus same drill but a little bit shorter with your finger here turn now to Leviticus chapter 19 been a while since you heard that from this pulpit turn to Leviticus chapter 19 there are gems by the way in Leviticus the command that we're about to read is in verse 18 but I just want to back up a little bit, and I want you to read the command in context because it's a part of a larger kind of oeuvre, a kind of larger movement of the heart of God. Let's start, I don't know, maybe in verse 13. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor, do not hold back the wages to a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am Yahweh. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor, interesting, or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor, rich or poor, fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people, what we call gossip. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice in context what that command is all about. First, it is about justice. It is about how we treat those who are, forgive the crass language here, but below us on the social ladder or a more Portland language in the hierarchy of privilege and power. We are to treat them with love and respect and dignity and justice. As Cornell West famously said, justice is what love looks like in public. But before those of you who care deeply about social justice get too excited, it's also about how we treat our enemies. Did you catch that as well? Those who are our fellow Israelites, or in our case, fellow Americans or whatever, that we hate in our heart. Those on the other side of the political aisle, or to bring it much closer to home, those that we hold a grudge toward, those who hurt us or gossip about us, or defraud us, or steal from us, or abandon us, or hurt, or reject us, or mock us, or wound us. We are to love them, our neighbor neighbor, as ourselves. Now, we are not to love our neighbor instead of ourselves, right? This is not saying, like, play the doormat, but as ourselves meaning we are to treat our neighbor with the same love and respect that we treat ourselves, friend or enemy, rich or poor, same demographic or a different one, like attracts like, or people who are very different from us and live from a very different set of assumptions about the good. Can you imagine what would happen if we were to actually do this? The vast majority of what you read on your front page of your newspaper would go away overnight. The vast majority of the world's problems would just disappear. Hence Jesus' closing line, if you go back to Matthew 22, last line, verse 40. All the law and the prophets... That's a a way of saying what we now call the Old Testament, the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. The rest was called the prophets. Hang on. These two mitzvot, these two commands, all of the Bible of the day, it hangs on. It's in a relationship where without this, there's nothing. Or as Rabbi Hillel put it, everything else is interpretation. Now, here we are a few thousand years later, on the other side of the world in a very different culture with a very different set of assumptions. But we're here this morning and online because we are apprentices of Jesus. Just meaning that we are learning from Jesus how to do the things that he said to do, how to live the way he said to live, how to experience the life and the love of God through daily communion in the kingdom as he did and taught us to how do we take this teaching of Jesus and kind of work it into the fabric of our apprenticeship to Jesus? Just a few thoughts before we call it a morning. One, make love the measure of your spiritual maturity. Uh, recently in, my, in a conversation with my spiritual director, he had this great throwaway line. He said, you know, it's very hard to measure spiritual maturity in such a way that the Pharisees don't win. The Pharisees would Sabbath every week, fast twice a week, pray the Shema two times a day, study the Torah all the time, and yet they were still, on the whole, judgmental, defensive, close-minded, mean, and unsafe to be around. We must never forget that practices, which we have a very high value for, and I would argue rightly so, but that practices, or as more people call them, spiritual disciplines, are a means to an end. The end, the telos, is not reading your Bible every day or praying fix-hour prayer or you're just nailing your rule of life or you Sabbath every week and you turn your phone off or whatever. The telos, the end, is becoming a person of love. Reading scripture, silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, living in community, confession of sin, all of it is a means to an end, which means all of the practices are very important, but they are not an accurate measure of spiritual maturity. They may be a good way to measure your level of devotion to Christ if. And only you can know this, and if that's if we have enough self-awareness, if we do them for the right reasons, to deepen our surrender to God, not to virtue signal to our friends or attempt to control our relationship with God, any recovering control freaks in the room who want to control everything, including your prayer life, or to assuage guilt and shame through a kind of spiritual perfectionism or what the monks called scrupulosity, which was basically OCD in the life of a spiritual person but rather to just deepen our surrender to God. But devotion is the path that we walk as we disciple under Jesus. It is not a measure of how far down that path we are. We all know younger Jesus apprentices who are full of zeal, yet a long ways from maturity. Some of you are like, you are that person. Uh, No argument there. Of course, the goal is less to measure our spiritual maturity at all, which will likely leave us inflated or deflated. The goal is to mature, and to make sure that we are, and this is the only even reason I could see for any kind of measurement or attempt at it, to make sure that we are making steady progress in the right direction year over year on the quote straight and narrow of Jesus. And the best way to tell is by a very simple metric, and it's not am I learning more about the Bible, though I am very much for learning more about the Bible. And it's not how often do I attend church. Do I go to Sunday and morning worship once a week? Do I go twice a week? That's all great stuff. It's am I becoming more loving year over year? As Pete Scazzaro, a mentor to our church and the author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, put it, quote, loving people well is the defining characteristic of a mature Christian. Not knowing the Bible well, not even praying a lot, not even giving a lot of money, not living by a rule of life. All of that is wonderful, but that does not make you a mature Christian. That's means the end is loving well. But here's the trick, and please listen carefully. To do that, we have to define love as agape, as Jesus defined it, not as our culture defines it, and I would argue they are poles apart. In the West, in particular in recent decades, we think of love as a feeling of either affection for or attraction toward someone or something. We, when we say I love that, we often mean I like it, I have feelings for it. Or we mean it as often desire, as in like when I say I love tacos or whatever, I love hat yai, I love shalom y'all, whatever. What I mean is I want to eat it. I had all a few days ago, it was just so good. I ate it all the way. There was nothing left on the plate. I consumed it for my own gratification and pleasure. Often when we say, I love someone, from God to our boyfriend or girlfriend, we often mean the same thing. I want to consume it for my own pleasure. I want to take from it, not give to it, I want to take. Our culture has little to no distinction between love and lust and between self-giving and narcissism. The common denominator in Western misunderstandings of love is they put the self at the center of love, not God or neighbor, which turns both God and other people into objects for personal gratification. Our culture is finding increasingly sophisticated ways of justifying its narcissism one of the most effective is to call all sorts of things from lust to just affinity to desire, love. But love in the teachings of Jesus in the library of scripture, it's not a feeling per se, though I would hope that there are genuine feelings that arise in our heart. It's definitely not a desire to take from another person. There are words for that in Greek, but they are not the word used here by Jesus. The word in the text is agape. Dallas Willard defined agape as, quote, love is not a feeling but the divine way of relating to others and oneself that moves through every dimension of our being and restructures our world for God. Dr. Bashir said, love is loyalty and commitment to serve a person so that they become more like Jesus, even if it means I give up my own rights and privileges as Jesus did for that one Michael Wilkins, an excellent scholar on the Gospel of Matthew, defined agape as quote, Love is unconditional commitment to an imperfect person in which one gives oneself to another to bring the relationship to God's intended purposes. To love God is to give ourselves to God and to let Him shape us for His intended purposes. To love our neighbor is to give ourselves to them, to partner with God to shape them for his intended purposes. This means that we must know God's intended purposes. We must know good and evil. And this is a problem that goes all the way back, way before Foucault and postmodernism. This problem goes back to the Garden of Eden. What is good? What is evil? Who says, who defines the boundary lines between good and evil? Who knows what will actually lead to human flourishing our culture has lost the skills necessary to discern good from evil. We're used to hearing a lot of language about love and hate, and of course we're for the former, not the latter. The problem is to, love, to call a behavior loving or, be, or call a behavior hateful requires a working definition of what is good and evil. To love someone is to will their good, To hate someone is to will their evil. That means you have to know good from evil, which is exactly what our culture and increasingly even our Christian generation is losing the capacity for. What do we do? How do we know? How do we proceed? Here's Willard on the role of scripture in our spiritual formation. He would argue that Jesus gave us the way to know good from evil thousands of years ago through the library that we call scripture and his teachings. There is so much more to the law than just rules or commandments. It provides a picture of reality. That's why the Old Testament is violent and full of sexism and anger and hypocrisy and violence. Because have you, have you read the news recently? That's what human beings are like. It's a picture of reality, of how things are with God and his creation. The prophets and the gospels share with the law this vital function of enabling human beings to know God, what God is doing, and what we are to do, wherein our true well-being lies. Through the reading of scripture, in particular the teachings and the life of Jesus in the four gospels, We discover what is actually good for ourselves and for our neighbor, which in turn is an invitation to agape. Second invitation, I think, for us today is to make loving God and obeying God inseparable. As I said, the Hebrew word shema means to listen and obey. Now there is a word that we've lost as a generation, right? I mean, we know what it means, but it's more unpopular than ever. For many of us, even those of us who love Jesus, obedience to Jesus is a bit of a foreign concept because it's so far outside the plausibility structures of our culture, where obedience to any form of external authority is seen as slavery, not freedom, and as an obstacle to flourishing, not the path by which we walk. But we must keep in mind that when we do what Jesus teaches because we agree with him, that's great. In fact, that's probably a sign of the Spirit of God at work in you, but that's not obedience. That's just doing what you think is best and agreeing with Jesus about what is best. Great. Obedience is when you do what Jesus teaches even when you don't understand. Or in all honesty, if you're ruthlessly honest, you even disagree, but you trust him. You trust his love, you trust his wisdom, you trust his authority over your life because he is in the place of God, not you. He's the one defining good and evil, not you. To love God isn't just to stir up a ton of emotions for God. I mean, that's great, but I don't think that's the call of Jesus here. Like, just get your emotion on and just stir it up, right? There's there's something to that. It's not to mock that. But it means to center him in our heart and to give our whole being, all of our ma'od, all of our muchness, all that we are, over to him in obedience. We may say that we love God and we may even believe it. The human capacity for self-deception is staggering and I'm no exception to that. But if we don't obey him, the truth is we don't actually trust and love him. Not yet we still trust in our inner desire for sin more. That's not to guilt you or shame you or me. It's just to pull back the curtain of insight. That means we're still at a place of immaturity in our spiritual formation where we have yet to trust God in this area of our life. And how do we know? We know because sin still looks good to us. It still has a draw to it, an appeal, an attraction to our heart. We still, in this area, love sin more than God. Richard Foster once said, sin is ultimately an attempt to fill our need for God with everything but God. He was hearkening back to what St. Augustine said over a millennium and a half ago, that brilliant North African who basically, to summarize his thought, said, human beings are lovers. The problem is not that we don't love, but that we love the wrong things sin or the self, or that we love the right things, but in the wrong order. Meaning love for God and neighbor are there, but they're seventh, eighth, ninth, and up at the top is self, or sexuality, or career, or money, or vindication, or your reputation, or whatever it is. Not necessarily bad things, but you put them in the wrong order, and it is devastating. And Augustine said the root problem in the human condition, what the New Testament called sin, is what Augustine called disordered loves. And discipleship to Jesus is about reordering our loves. It's about coming to trust his vision of good and evil, coming to listen and obey As we apprentice under Jesus, over time, our inner world is transformed. Our heart is transformed and set free from its deception to lies. And we come to see sin as it actually is evil and God and his ways as they actually are all supreme goodness. We come to love him and love his definition of goodness. Apprenticing Jesus is all about turning that inner fulcrum of your heart over to God in obedience. Day after day after day. It's about daily, small, ordinary obedience. About the cross in Jesus' language. About what the psychologist and spiritual director David Benner once called surrender to love. Just God, I don't understand. My heart is still a mess and disordered, but I yield. Here I am. I obey. Last... The invitation is to make loving God and loving neighbor inseparable as well. The reason I had you turn to Leviticus is to see who Jesus means by neighbor, and that's because it's easy to love humanity. It's easy to love people. It's easy to love people groups out there because they aren't real. They are an illusion in your mind's eye. It's much harder to love people people, as in your neighbor neighbor. Defined as people you are in relational proximity to and not by choice. Who are different from you, who sin against you, hurt you, frustrate you, angry, anger you, annoy you, your, your neighbor neighbor. You see, people in Jesus' world were not transient as most of us are in the West. They did not self-select like a cool neighborhood with cool people in their same demographic. Most people were born and raised in the same small agrarian village that they later died in. In our culture, because of transience and all sorts of other factors, the vast majority of relationships are transactional. They are relationships of choice that we pick based on personal gratification. I like this person, I feel they move my life goals forward, let's spend time together. That is not all bad, but it is dangerous for those of us whose telos is to become people of agape. Love must become its own reward, not what we get from people or even what we give to them, but becoming people of agape who receive the healing love of God and then give it on. That's it. To do this, the culture would say that we must first love ourselves. And there is more than a little truth in that, in particular for those of you who grew up in a family of origin where you did not receive an adequate or ample supply of love and affection. But I still think a better strategy than love yourself is to say we must first let God love us. In the deepest places of not only our woundedness, but even our wickedness. We must let him in to the inner chamber of our heart where we are scared to even look, much less ever have the audacity to let someone else look. We must let him take up space there, the most bent and broken part of who we are. Love us there from the inside out and transform us into people who radiate the love of God. Remember, the Shema assumes the love of God. The people that it commands to love God have already been very well loved by God. Same orders in the New Testament. Like I think of 1 John, we love him because he what? You all know that one. First loved us. There's an order, and the degree to which we live in the love of God every day, to that degree that we experience it by the Spirit through prayer and the community around us, and we bask in it, and we just let it seep into the marrow of our bones, is the degree to which we will radiate that love to other people and all people will become our neighbor. Now, I need to say right here, it's very important that I say this, that I do not come to you this morning as like the bright, shining example of love. I wish I could just stand up here and say, look at me, just radiate love to all. Follow me, I wish I could say that. My wife's not here, so maybe I could get away with it, But but she's coming to the next gathering, so I for sure can't. I have more than a little Pharisee in me on my best days. I can be judgmental, And defensive and narcissistic and even hypocritical, all of it is in me. As I'm guessing, a lot of it is in you. And while overall, I think that the people closest to me would say that year over year, I'm becoming more loving as I apprentice under Jesus. C.S. Lewis, you know, once said that the spiritual journey is one of, quote, peaks and troughs or peaks and valleys. Meaning, if you imagine your spiritual journey, it's less of like a, you know an infographic that is just straight and up to the right. And it's more of like, if it goes well, like a stock market, like a scratchy line that over you know, 50 years or 100 years is up into the right, but there's a lot of up and downs along the way. Like a lot of you, you know, coming out of COVID, I don't feel like I'm at a peak right now. I feel like I'm at a trough. I feel like I'm down here where the economy was last spring. That's where my spiritual formation feels like it is right now. Maybe up from where it was 10 years ago, but still a scary place. The last year plus of just leadership through COVID is as wonderful as you have been as a church, and I thank God for you every day. But they've also been the greatest challenge I've ever come across in 20 years as a pastor and I've worked myself to the bone, and I am so exhausted, I could barely get out of bed this morning. And honestly, right now, if you were to like follow me around with a camera at home, and please don't, it would be the end of my ministry, I am just grumpy. Like, I'd just be glad that you're not my teenage son right now. You know, I'm just grumpy. I have to do a lot of apologizing at home right now. And I have a sabbatical coming in the fall, which feels forever away, but I'm very excited about that. But it's been a real sobering season for me, Just to realize I have to make, as I move into the second half of my life, some some deeper and more systemic changes to how I live in order to become the kind of person for whom obeying the command to love God and love my neighbor as myself, it's just the natural outflow of who I have become in Christ. You know, I just turned 40 and one of the, and this maybe we'll just go out to some of you type A people, but one of the great lessons of this stage is that there are seasons to life and it's important to recognize, none of us are at our best right now. That's okay, don't beat yourself up about it. Summer is coming, in theory, COVID is maybe over, I don't know, in the not too distant future. Don't beat yourself up, but still, At some point, when you reach about my age, you start to realize that it's just a season. That excuse only works so long when there's season, after season, after season. And you start to realize, what if life is just crisis after crisis, after crisis, after after challenge, after obstacle, after setback, after, that was a great day, after challenge, after, don't worry, if that sounds pessimistic, just age a little. Um, But no, I don't mean that in a cynical way at all. I just mean, there's a truth to that. Yes, COVID was a season, last summer was a season, we're in a transition right now and that is very much a season for me, but yet I'm 40 years old and I can no longer delude myself into just thinking that workaholism is just a thing for whatever. I have to face the fact that, wow, I I work too much, uh, I carry things emotionally that I should not because they don't belong to me to carry. I often prioritize uh, th- things such as ministry more than I prioritize my children and my marriage. I have to face, I can't, I can't justify that as a season. I have to face the reality of who I actually am before the fierce love of God. And as I receive his love, I have to receive the invitation to make at times small and at times more radical changes to my lifestyle? So I'm asking all sorts of questions, sobering, hard, scary for me questions, about when I come back from sabbatical, how do I wanna come back in a very different way? And you know what, that, those are the questions of life. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is creating an overall lifestyle, or in ancient Christian language, a rule of life that is designed to facilitate deep transformation through abiding in Jesus' love and living in his community. It's an entire way of life that is just set up to follow what we just read, to place our whole life before God, body and all, as an offering of love. Just God, here I am. Heal me, save me, transform me. I yield. In this day, in this moment, in this small little temptation, I give, I yield. That's our part. That's it. Just to slow down to surrender to love. His part is to heal us, save us, form us into people of agape. That is, for the most part, out of our control. Our part is what we do with our schedule, what we do with our mind and our body, what we do with our budget, how we structure our life. Our part is just to make space and to surrender to love. So to end, what changes do you need to make to set up a life where year over year you are growing in your capacity to love God and your neighbor? Is there a small change that you need to make this week, right here, tomorrow morning, a habit, a reoccurring thought, a bedtime or wake-up time, a relationship to the internet or social media or Netflix, an emotion you need to process, a A wound you need to let go of or forgive? A therapy session you need to sign up for? A relationship that you need to end? It could be anything. Or is there a massive change that you need to make? A new job or a new living situation or a new... You fill in the blank. Let's just end to end. I'm not even going to have you stand. I just want to invite you right where you're at to maybe sit up and just take a deep breath. Put your Bible, your notepad away. Those of you at home on the couch or whatever, just kind of roll your shoulders back and lift your chest up and just take a few deep lungfuls of the generosity of God through oxygen. And I just want to invite you to sit in that question. I want to force you, you don't have to do this, but to sit in that question before God. God, what changes do I need to make, minor or major, to craft a lifestyle of apprenticeship to and obedience to you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and fill our mind and imagination and heart right now.